I've often said in here, and you probably heard me say it, is that uh, I'm a teacher and not a preacher. You know, we, we call what we do here right now, what I'm doing right now, a message. It's not necessarily a sermon. And I'm a teacher and not a preacher. And what's the difference between the two? And in my thought is that the primary purpose of a preacher is to persuade. And the primary purpose of a teacher is to make students ready to engage. And I see that as a primary difference, you know. Now, we both have agendas, preachers and teachers. You know, the agenda is to help people. But I suppose you could say that a preacher believes that his message is absolute truth. And a teacher believes that his or her message is accurate and can empower you to find truth. And that's what we do here. We don't tell you what to think. We don't tell you what to believe. We don't tell you what to do. But what we do do is give you information that we have vetted and believe is really accurate, information that has helped change our lives. And we give you resources and we give you support. But the idea is for you to take your journey. We can't take it for you. And it goes beyond just sitting here in this room, as as important as these meetings are. So it's a journey that you need to take. Now, that being said, I'm still, I'm not just a potted plant here. I do have an opinion and that seeps out. Of course, you know that about me, right? You know, I'm going to tell you what I am convinced of, passionately convinced of, but the rest is up to you. You know, that said, do I ever cross over to the dark side? Do I ever stray into preaching? Of course I do. And if there were two things that I could persuade you of, this is what I would love to persuade you of. And that is, first, to be here. Now, you're all here, so I'm I'm preaching to the choir, right? So you're here. But to those out there, we would love to persuade them to come and find. We believe that this community is not necessarily unique, but it is rare. It is based on something that is different from mainstream Christianity. And so we believe that it's important for people to be here and get exposed to this. And then go wherever they need to go after that, if that's the case. And if it's not this community, I would like to persuade you to be a part of any community. Community is absolutely essential. And the second thing that I'd like to persuade you of is to engage your own personal journey. The one that exists outside of this room and outside of this group. The one that you take interiorly. The one that you take when absolutely no one is looking. I would love to persuade you to take that journey. But of course I can't do it. It's not mine to give. But even then, these two things that I would love to persuade you of are simply what's, right? They are structures. They are possibly disciplines that you can add into your life. But the how, the how, the way that you accomplish these are all your own. That's endlessly unique with each one of us. We want to draw the broad outlines. We want to give you the basic structures. We want to show you from our experience and from 2,000 years of Christian experience what is essential. What are the structures and the disciplines that work that help people in their spiritual formation? But what you do with it is really yours. So I've been thinking, as I've been going through this, how have I been... How was I, probably a better way to put it, some 30, 35 years ago, how was I persuaded to enter into a community, to re-enter a Christian community? I grew up Catholic and then spent 15 years on my own. And when I came back to a Christian church, what persuaded me to do that? And then beyond that, what persuaded me 
to actually engage in a personal journey that took me, some would say, (laughs) outside the gates of Christianity, but that's not really true. I don't believe. But it took me on a journey that ended up someplace that I never anticipated. And yet everything was good. As long as I was traveling with my God, everything was good. So, as I've been thinking about this, at the time when I was being persuaded to do these things, I had no idea what was going on. I wasn't cognizant. I just knew that I was impelled. It was something that I needed to do. It was like breath to me. But my friend Randy over here, gave me an article that I read that I thought was really fascinating. And I might have heard some of these points before, but this article really brought the art of persuasion down to, as he said, the, uh, the, the writer of the article, to one sentence. He said that several times. It's just one sentence. In fact, he said it's just 27 words and five points. And just like when you go to see a magician and you see a trick that is so astounding, it just blows your mind, If you ever figure out, if you ever hear and see or read what that trick is really about, how it works, it's like, that's so simple. That can fool anybody. But it fooled me. (laughs) And it's like in this art of persuasion, what he keeps coming back to is when you know what it is that really persuades people, it really moves them. It's so simple that you think it would never work. And yet it does. And most of our modern advertising and everything, the communication and politics and everything is built on these principles. I put that sentence at the top of your insert. And I want to read it as soon as the music stops. All right, good. Now I can read it. (laughs) Uh, Do we still have a chair when the music stopped? Good. He writes, People will do anything for those who encourage their dreams justify their failures, allay their fears, confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about that for a second. There's five points there, right? And the more I think on it, the more it makes sense. If you want to persuade someone, if you would like to influence them, even encourage them, how do you do it? You encourage their dreams, justify their failures, Allay their fears, confirm their suspicions, and help them throw rocks at their enemies. Find a common cause. You know, It makes sense when you think about it. Because persuasion is about meeting or at least promising to meet our basic human needs. That's, that's as simple as it gets. It's not about us. It's not about our agenda. If it becomes about our agenda, we've lost the ability to persuade, the ability to influence But if we are sincerely looking to meet the human and basic human needs of another person, they're going to be listening, just as we would be listening. As I realized, I was listening when all of this was going on all those years ago. If you think about it, what did I want? What what was it that I was after? How did the church or the promise of community work me, work on me, to move me to do something that I wasn't doing previously. Encouraging dreams. Obviously, everyone has dreams. We all have desires. We all have things that we want to to do and be. At the time, some 30 years ago, you know what I wanted most? I just wanted the hurting to stop. I was in such trauma at that time. I just wanted it to stop hurting I wanted to be in a place where 
things felt normal, where things felt balanced, where there was a sense of some kind of peace, where things made some sort of sense, even common sense, where I had a sense of meaning and purpose, where I had a sense of who I was, where I had a sense of being a part of something that was larger than myself. I couldn't have articulated it that way to you, but looking back, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted those things as much as I wanted air. And coming back to the Christian church for the first time in 15 years promised all of that. It was felt like coming home. The cross was on the wall. There was Jesus again. And it felt like I was being asked to be part of a family again and that all of those things that I wanted were going to be present to me again. And so it drew me in. But as I got into it further, it stopped short of really encouraging all the dreams that I had. There were parts that were still missing, parts that I couldn't get somehow. And so it forced me to move further forward. didn't force me to leave, but it forced me to realize there had to be something else and something more. Justifying failures. You know how this works in advertising? It's like if you uh, are selling a weight loss remedy, you would say, you know, you're overweight, but it's really not your fault because it's your metabolism. And here's the fix for the metabolism, right? You may be depressed, but it's really not your fault because it's brain chemistry. And here's the fix for the brain chemistry. Maybe your yard is an absolute mess and you're embarrassed about that. And you call the landscaper and he says, you know, it's really not your fault. You know, it's the soil conditions. We're in a drought right now. It's this and it's that. To justify your failures is a way to really draw people in because they finally feel relieved for what it is that they're feeling that they're responsible for. Now, obviously, we believe here that we are responsible for the things that we do. But on the other hand, the way that I was looking at it is I had spent so much time feeling guilty, feeling shamed, feeling less than, feeling like I wasn't adding up, that I wasn't making things work right to try to finally feel that there was a promise of real forgiveness was like everything. And not just forgiveness in terms of some sort of legal transaction, that if I did this, this, and this, then God would forgive me and allow me entrance into the kingdom or whatever. It was more of this just existential knowing that I was already forgiven. I was already there. That was the promise to me. Now, it didn't get actualized in the church that I landed in after 15 years. It was still more of a legal contract there, but it spurred me on to try to figure out how is this possible? There were people showing up in my life and on a printed page that were telling me that there was a different way to look at forgiveness. There was a different way to understand my relationship with God. And that pulled me on, motivated me to keep on going. To allay your fears, and if you're not familiar with that word, allay, it means to put something to rest. It means to alleviate it, to put your fears to rest. The church actually was going in the other direction. They interpreted fear of the Lord as being afraid of God's wrath and the things that God would do to you if we didn't toe the line. It was still a legal message And so the fear was still there. I saw the fear around me and the people that were there. They were worried about their own salvation, sometimes even after 20, 30, 40 years in the church, still wondering if they were saved. That fear wasn't being allayed. But 
There were people on the printed page and there were people showing up in my life and people that I was going to see, especially the priests at, at Sarah Retreat, who were starting to show me the edges of something different, a different way to understand God's love. And that spurred me on to try to figure out, is there really such a thing as unconditional love? Love that exists no matter what, that cannot be changed. That as soon as I draw near to it, I've got it. And if I want to go stand in the shade, I can do that. But as soon as I come back out, I've got it. Were Jesus' words real when he said that the rain and the sun fall on the just and the unjust alike? Was that real? Or was that just hyperbole? Was that just poetry? What was going on? And I was persuaded. I was motivated. I was influenced to try to find out, to take my own journey even beyond the community that I stayed in and the community that I loved. I loved these people. I loved being with them. I finally felt felt a part of a community. But I still had to drive forward and figure out what was going on. And as I continued to move forward, guess what? Some of my basic suspicions were confirmed. <laughs> because I had a sense of a, a common sense about how things must be, that some of the things that were being taught me could not be true because they were clearly abusive. They're clearly hurting people the way that they were being applied and the way that they're being taught. And my suspicions were that something's wrong here. Something is, is, is being miscommunicated, misunderstood. And as I moved further in, I realized there is another way to look at this. There's another way to look at the scriptures. And of course, when I discovered the Hebrew roots of Christianity and Jesus speaking from an Aramaic point of view, so many of those suspicions were confirmed and so much resolved Everything, actually, resolved back to the Father's love. And I was being pulled further and further through. And this idea of, of uh, helping me throw rocks at my enemies, I love that one. But if this is going to work for us in a spiritual context, it's going to be if we expand the idea of the enemy. We just talked about this last Wednesday in the book of James. The idea of the enemy has to include persons, places, and things. It's not just people that we're in an adversarial relationship. It's every situation. It can be an illness. It can be anything that we come up against that is our enemy at that moment. If it is a block, if it is a frustration of our agenda, if it's an adversary of any kind, it's an enemy. And to have someone come alongside and help you be in the foxhole with you as you're fighting through that struggle. For the first time, I started to feel like Jesus was in the foxhole with me. When he said, these things you see me do, you can do, and greater things than these, that suddenly took on a brand new understanding. When he said, come follow me, and he was there every step of the way, walking not only with the disciples of his lifetime, but also walking with me, I finally had an ally. I had someone who was with me, and that changed everything. These things were pulling me through. The promise of them spurred me on, and then the realization of them confirmed. But every one of those was being worked on at some level. And I didn't realize it at the time, and I couldn't have articulated this at the time. I had no idea But Jesus, as I was coming to know him, was with me in a way that I never imagined before. And others as well, both dead and alive, in print and in person, 
There were people coming around that suddenly were helping me. And what seemed absolutely overcomable, which seemed, what seemed absolutely out of reach for so long, all those years, suddenly was right there. Something that I could actually partake in. And that changed everything. It wasn't orderly for me. It wasn't straightforward, right? And I had no clue at the time what was going on, but I pressed on. And maybe you don't need to understand all this. Maybe you don't need to know. You just have to be drawn through. But I think on another level, it might be easier if we do have a framework, if we have a way to create milestones for ourselves, see where we are on the journey, move further along the journey. And so that's what I would like to do this morning. What would I like to persuade you to do? Well, you're already here, so I can't persuade you any more than that. But I would love to persuade you to engage deeper, to drive your spiritual, personal spiritual journey, your own spiritual formation further on, deeper, in a way that nobody else can see. It's visible to you, but it's only to you. And specifically, just as we talked of last week, to create your own sacraments, or I should maybe I should say a sacramental way of observing Lent this year. Lent is this perfect built-in time in the liturgical year because it's 40 days, an excuse to have a, a certain demarcation point and an end point where we can try something different and we can see where it takes us. And it's all leading up to Easter, this celebration of new life, this rebirth. And so this is a perfect time to create your own sacramental way of observing Lent. It's yours. It's absolutely yours. Now, why do I use the word sacrament? What is it about a sacrament? For those of us who grew up in the Catholic Church, it's a little scary. For instance, for the first time in 13 years almost, we did ashes last week for Ash Wednesday. And um, I got some pushback on that, you know, especially online. I think people are safer to push back online, right? They feel safer. So when I advertised this thing that you could get ashes, a couple of people responded, you know, in a negative way. And that's fine. I understand it. You know, one of the women said that she left all that behind from her Catholic days. And she has very, very negative views of her, of her Catholic upbringing. And when we actually did the ashes here, I, I said, if you would like, yes. And if no, no. But the whole point of a sacrament is even something like ashes on Ash Wednesday, which is just a symbol of going into this, what is sometimes called apophatic. It, it's, it's, uh, we, we wanted to call it positive subtraction rather than seeing the, the, the letting go and the clearing the space out and, and the you know, taking out things that were distracting us as being negative, a positive subtraction. But it's just a symbol. And so the actual definition of a sacrament is an outward expression of an inward transformation. And that's so important for us to understand. There's nothing in the ritual. There's nothing in the rite. There is nothing in the thing that we do together or even individually that has any meaning in and of itself. It's only as meaningful as the heart that comes to it. It is what flows out of the transformation that has already taken place. Whether it's baptism or whether it's Eucharist or whether it is marriage, any of those. The church recognizes seven sacraments. Who can name all seven sacraments? 
I put the little symbols at the bottom of your inserts. You see them there? Okay, the first one is baptism. You see that one? Second one is confirmation. Third, obviously, Eucharist. The fourth, the cross was not so explicit. But that's what the uh, Catholic Church at least now calls reconciliation. In my day, it was confession, right? Confession. The two rings, obviously, marriage, right? And the the stole there is holy orders. That's when uh, priests are confirmed. And then finally, what used to be called extramunction and now is anointing of the sick or last rites. Those are the seven sacraments that are recognized by at least the Catholic Church, Anglican Church, and other churches. But what I'd like to do is to expand again the idea of sacrament. And why is a sacrament important in terms of what we're trying to do for Lent? What I'm hoping you will do for yourselves. Because a sacrament is something we actually do. We physically do it. It's not just in our minds. It's a structure that we have to create and we actually have to perform it. We have to do it. It requires effort. It requires discipline. And it's visible, if only to ourselves. It's still visible. It's something we can share in community if we choose to do it that way. And it's something that is visible to ourselves. We can see that we're moving the ball forward as we do it, even though it's the interior that counts. And as we expand this view of sacrament, I would like to understand a sacramental way of approaching Lent as doing anything that we do as an expression of inner transformation. It can be anything you choose to do. But if you bring the right intention to it, if you bring the right kind of presence to it, it becomes sacred. It's something that is actually transforming you and working to transform you as you engage in it. How about if you just pledged to make one person smile each and every day of Lent? How about that? What kind of sacrament would that be? How about if you pledged to leave each person you meet better than you found them? And maybe the evidence of that is the smile. That doesn't mean you have to tell jokes or make funny faces at them. It's just what you do in the natural course of events. But you register that smile. And you realize you've performed your sacrament. You've left one person better. You've made a connection, a human connection in that moment. It can be as simple and as easy as that. Nothing huge. Remember, there's a catch. And the catch is that the expression or the sacrament is only as meaningful as the heart that comes to it. We are the ones who make it sacred. So where's your heart at? Where are you at right now? Here's how Jesus put it. Take a look at Matthew 5, starting at verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, there is a sacrament, right? Jews were were required to do this. Whenever they fell out of connection, if they broke one of the commandments, they had to present an offering at the altar. They had to be declared clean again by the priest. So therefore, if you're doing this sacrament, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. He's telling us the same thing. It's all about the relationship. It's all about the connection. If the sacrament is helping you to connect better and relate better, it's sacred. If it's not, or if you have relationships that you're leaving in tatters, 
how sacred can the sacrament be? So think about that right now. Do you have a relationship that's in tatters? Do you have a relationship that is broken to the point that it affects you and affects you every day? How about that? Maybe maybe what you have to do is to go ever and do everything that you can to repair that relationship. Now, you have no control over the outcome. You have no control what the other person is going to do. But if you've done everything that you could, you can leave it at that. Maybe that is the sum total of your entire Lent sacrament. Maybe that's all you do. But anything else that you would try to do, if you're leaving those relationships as they are, in a broken state, is really just putting band-aids over tumors. What Jesus is saying, forget all the rest of the stuff. Fix the relationships first. As we're looking at what we're trying to try to do this, this Lent, to see if we can engage deeper, think about those things. What are the nature of your relationships? And are some that need to be repaired? Is there anything that you can do? Do them. And then come back and let's see what else could possibly be happening. The Hebrews had three ways of measuring their righteousness in community. And they're not bad. But the problem was that the Pharisees had grown so corrupt based on a sense of legalism and also the power that they had gained from their legalism and their position with the people that Jesus had to call them out on every single one of them. And he does this right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of of, of uh, chapter 6 in Matthew. And it pretty much takes up the whole chapter. But the three were charity or almsgiving, the second was prayer, and the third was fasting. And these were the visible ways that the Hebrew people understood that a person was righteous, that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But Jesus takes every one of these and turns them around in the exact same way that we're looking at right now. Look what he says here at Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Now, this sounds just like a nice, you know, poetic way of saying it. Don't sound the trumpet before you give. But that actually had a real-world context. The collection boxes in, in, the, in the temple court were like inverted trumpets. They were wide at the base and they narrowed to, to the top, had a, had a throat to them, and you dropped your, your coinage in, you dropped whatever in, and if you really wanted to make a big splash, you put a whole bunch in and threw them down, and they made a big sound, and everybody looked to see who gave all that money. Wow! That's sounding the trumpet. And Jesus says, hey, don't do that. The Pharisees did it on purpose to show how righteous they were. They wanted everybody to know how much that they gave. And he's saying, don't do that. When you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet. And in the streets, so that they may be honored by men, truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, he will reward you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? 
If there is any other motive in your heart than just the pure gift that you're giving to make someone smile that day, to leave that person better than you found them that day, then there's no sacrament. There's no inner transformation. It's just a transaction. It's not transformation. A sacrament, a true sacrament, is going to flow effortlessly and unselfconsciously. Don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing from within. It's going to be something that is as natural as breathing to you. Stimulus response. You see a need, you try to fill it in some way, in some responsible way. Now, how could this play out for all of us? You know, And I want to expand the idea of giving as well and charity. It's not just about money. That's not what we're talking about here. We talked about just giving a smile. You remember, remember when uh, <laughs> you don't even see these anymore. There used to be little collection plates at the checkers in the, in the store is give a penny, take a penny. Remember that? You know, we don't even have pennies. Are pennies even in our currency anymore? I mean, they're so worthless. You, know, you don't even see that anymore. Everybody's using credit cards, I guess. But give a smile. Take a smile. That idea, it, that is a way of giving. That is a way of, of, of affecting your charity. Make that one person smile just through a kindness, just through acknowledgement of their existence by giving them eye contact in the grocery store. Maybe you give them a compliment, a real compliment, something that you see and you speak it out. How would you feel if you were giving that kind of compliment? Is that going to create a smile? Maybe you do tell a joke. I don't know. If you've got a good joke, go for it. Simple, everyday action. Nothing huge. Not even anything calculated. You're going through your day and things occur to you as you meet the people that you meet. You hold the door for them. Maybe you help them carry something. You know, Maybe you let your car merge, their car merge before your car. You know, Don't do what I did the other night. <laughs> Marion and I were coming home and we were on La Plata and there was an accident there. So we were backed up and we're sitting there completely still for at least 15 minutes. And then finally they started letting the right lane go and we were in the right lane. So the left lane emptied out as everybody merged over and there's nothing but cones. And so this person jets up all the way from the back and then wants to cut in front of me. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about, don't you? So I just nudged up and I just followed the bumper of the car before me and they ended up right behind me and they laid on the horn. And then when we finally got to the intersection and they passed me, they had a few really choice things to say to your pastor on the way. You know, I thought about that afterwards. I thought, you know, I suppose I could justify what I did, but was it really worth it? You know, just let them in. What the heck? What's it going to do? I was glad they didn't have a BB gun or something worse in there. and You just never know these days. Simple, everyday actions that are going to create a result, a response. Your day's better. Their day's better. It becomes a sacred act. It's a sacrament. It's something that you're doing. And it's like the task within the task. It's so simple. You hold the door for someone. You say hi. You get a smile. You say, well, that's nothing. It's everything. What is happening inside your heart as you practice that day after day? As that becomes the air you breathe day after day. When it comes to prayer, at verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. He keeps coming back to that. 
You do these things this way with these kinds of motives, there is nothing else. Whatever your agenda was, whatever outcome, you wanted to be seen better by the people around you, okay, that's as far as it goes. There is nothing happening inside. He uses that phrase over and over. They have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See what the Pharisees were doing? Those prayers happened at regular times during the day, three times during the day. They would make sure that they were on the busiest intersection, in the middle of the marketplace, in the middle of the temple, and then they would make a big show of their prayer. And in another place in Matthew 23, Jesus talks about how they broadened their phylacteries. They actually wore leather pouches on their foreheads that had scrolls written in them because they took literally what uh, the Lord told them in Deuteronomy. And they had another one on their left hand right here against their heart. And they're just little boxes. They would make the boxes really big. And they had to have tassels on each of the four corners of their prayer shawl. They would have them really long. In fact, there is a story of one Pharisee whose tassels were so long that they had to be carried behind on a pillow like a bride's train as he walked through the streets. And Jesus said, hey, they're doing all this for show. They have their reward in full. But when you pray... Go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this doesn't need to just be taken literally, although it would be taken literally. Each Jew who had a home, especially if there are multiple rooms, had a room that they could go and be secluded, or they'd go on the roof. They'd go someplace where they could be alone. But it's also talking about retreating interiorly, a contemplative type of prayer. A wordless prayer where we go inside and we find something deeper. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Of course he does. And then, of course, he gives the Lord's Prayer at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Praying. What can you do that would be sacramental? during Lent to fulfill what Jesus is talking about and where he's steering us in our prayer. Can you add some devotion time in the morning? Can you get up a half an hour early, 45 minutes early, quiet time, reading time, centering prayer, meditation, any type of prayer that calls to mind, reminds us what we're doing. Last week we gave out the handouts that are still there on the uh, connection section board. Mindfulness exercises, six exercises you can practice during the day that will just bring you down to ground level again. Bring your head back where your feet are. How about just mindful walks? You take a walk a day or take a walk several times a week and you're really looking and seeing what is there. You're not in your head and isolated, but you're there and you're seeing everything, but you're not naming it either. You're just aware of it. You're just seeing it, trying to let your mind and your thoughts just subside as you just become a part of something. I would just say make a point to look up. How often do we just look up? I know you're driving, you got to keep your eyes on the road, but do you ever just look up and look at the clouds? I mean, every time I do that, I'm just amazed. I'm amazed at the infinite variety. I'm amazed at the way the light plays through them. Or look at the trees. See the scenery as it's coming by. Look down. See whatever is going on down there. But be present to it. And I'll tell you what. 
when you see something that just captures you, and without any permission from you, you suddenly realize the smile has crept across your face, that's the greatest prayer there is. Complete immersion, enjoyment, and reverence for the creation that God has given us to play in our entire lives. And finally, fasting. Starting at verse 16, whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance, so they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. They would literally do this. You know? They would put on some ash on their face to make their complexion look gray. You know? And they'd put on, and they'd just make this pretense so that everybody knew that they were suffering and they were doing it for God. You know? If you do that, you got your reward in full, whatever people think about that. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, fasting is a hard one for us, you know. A lot of you are already on diets. You figure like you're already fasting, right? But again, I want to expand this idea of fasting. It's not just about food. It can be about food. You want to do what the, uh, the uh, medieval Christians did, is reduce your, your food for the day to one meal. Or maybe you take one meal away. Maybe your meals are smaller. Maybe you stop eating meat. Maybe if you're a vegetarian, you start eating meat. I don't know. How does that really work? You know? But you do something different. And it's not for its own sake and it's not for health reasons. And if you're thinking, hey, I'm going to lose weight, then you have your reward in full. Whatever pound you lose. Because what we're talking about here in fasting is creating a situation, a circumstance, an ongoing circumstance where we will be constantly reminded of God's presence. You know the beautiful thing about those fringes, the teat seats on the, on the corner of the, of the prayer shawls? was that the word tzitzit itself has a gamatria, which is a uh, gamatria, which is uh, the numeral, uh, numerological equivalent of 600. And then the knots that were tied, there was five knots and eight strings, and you add that together and it's 613, which was the number of commandments that the rabbis understood that the, the written Torah contained. And so every time that they saw the, the fringes, they would be reminded of Torah. They would be reminded of their God. That was the beautiful purpose of it. That's great until someone has to carry them on a pillow behind you and then it gets lost. But the fasting works the same way. It reminds you every time that you change your diet, every time you remember that you're not going to eat that, you're going to eat this, it changes things. But is it just about food? Think about the things that you are consuming all day long, thoughtlessly, that are crowding your inner airwaves with noise and, and with distraction. Can you turn off the car radio and just drive in silence and look at the sky and the road, but look at the sky and see things and move yourself into a different space? Can you turn off the TV that's on constantly in your, in your home? especially if it's plain news, 24-hour news. Yeah, I mean, turning that off. How would that change things? What is it that you are doing that you can alter, that things can change? Is it social media? Is it video games? Whatever is crowding you out of your own head and distracting you, can you clear a space? Can you simplify? Can you create this ongoing reminder of God's presence and the connection 
It's your intention that is going to make this sacred. It's not just doing something or taking it away so that you are suffering for its own sake. It's clearing the space to let God's presence become real. Why do all of this? Why take the time? Why take the effort? Maybe the better question is, how can you persuade yourself to see this as something you want to do? Let me ask you just a couple questions and we'll close with this. What are your dreams? What is it that you really want out of life? Is it peace? Is it love? Is it relationship? Is it health? Is it finances? Can you see what what we're doing here is going to take you there? Obviously, if that's the motive, then we're doing this in the wrong way. But do you see how just an unselfconscious move along these directions is going to help you with your dreams? Especially if your dreams are about relationship, about the kind of serenity and loss of anxiety that you really seek. Are you feel fearful? Is that really your default position? Are you feeling guilty all the time? Are you ashamed? Or are you just disappointed with your place in life? In this deeper presence, we'll become convinced of a love and convinced of a forgiveness that can start to move this into a different place in our lives. Do you suspect that there's more to life? That there is something missing in life? Only this personal engagement can confirm your suspicions. It's the only way this works. Nobody can give it to you. As you experience the trustworthiness of God, as you experience God's promises coming real in your life, then they're yours, and you're convinced of them, and they will allay your fears, and they will confirm your suspicions, and they will justify your failures in the sense that you realize that even though they are your failures, that you are forgiven anyway. And finally, do you feel all alone? Do you feel like you're facing overwhelming challenges that you can just not overcome? If you do these things, you will find a partner with you. People around you that will come out of the woodwork, it seems, and be there when you need them. And also you will understand your God in a new way. I would like to persuade you to create at least one sacrament a day this Lent and move forward in that kind of sacramental process. But all I can do is give you information, I can give you resources, and I can certainly give you support. And if anyone wants to talk about these things in more detail, please come talk to me at any time. Call me during the week. But the truth is you must persuade yourself. It's the only way this works. And I'm hoping that your own desire to have your dreams encouraged and your failures forgiven and your fears put to rest, and your common sense confirmed, and your enemies pacified. And add to that a sense of God's presence and promise to always be with us every step of the way. And I think you'll find that very persuasive. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Lent. Thank you for the liturgical reminder that there is a time of the year that we can dedicate to something like this. And Father, we pray that whatever we do this Lent will be just the beginning of a new way of life in you, a new way of living our lives in spirit 
that will bleed over into the rest of the year and the rest of our lives, that we will find here in this short space a different way of understanding who you are and how we connect in this life. Again, Father, thank you for everything that you do, always drawing us, always desiring our presence with you. Help us to use that as another persuasive promise that we can have you that way if we so desire. We love you, Lord. Thank you for letting us know that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.